Sharks play a vital role in the health of marine ecosystems. As a keystone species, without them, entire ecosystems can collapse. Using data gathered between 2012 and 2019, a recent study published in the journal Science found that nearly 80 million sharks were killed a year by humans. Of that number, 25 million were threatened species. Today I'm speaking to Dr Leonardo Guida, a senior sharks campaigner and marine biologist from the Australian Marine Conservation Society. Thanks so much for joining us at Tune FM today. Oh, thanks, Ash. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. So just to get us started, what drew you to studying marine biology and sharks? I had a fascination with them since I was a kid. Um, I know everyone likes to, to blame Jaws, the film, for the bad rap that sharks get. And, you know, it, it's warranted. Um, but I don't think you really hear enough about how many people actually thank the movie Jaws for getting them into shark science and, and Jaws is one of those things for me. So as a kid, I loved science and I loved art, but I also just love getting scared and I love a good monster slash horror film. And Jaws is essentially that. And so as a kid, you know, that, that, that sense of adrenaline, that sense of rush watching a film like that, coupled with this incredible animal, coupled with my love of the ocean and science, it kind of all coalesced into me just becoming obsessed with this one particular animal and wanting to know more about it. And, yeah, as, as, as I grew up and, and as things unfolded, we, we fast forward and I was fortunate enough to, to study a PhD at Monash University down in Melbourne where I looked at the effects of commercial fishing on, on shark and ray populations, uh, specifically how stressed out they get when they're caught, what that means for their survival and even their reproduction. Uh, and shortly after that, um, I was lucky enough to, to get a gig at the Australian Marine Conservation Society leading their shark conservation work. And I've been doing that since 2018. So I'm very fortunate to be living the childhood dream um, and love what I do. And then the great thing is I get to speak to people such as yourself and hopefully we can all leave the world a a better place than what we found it. Because they're not all the vicious predators that the, the media seems to make them out to be. No, 100%. You're 100% on the money. Um, people generally think of the big three, you know, white sharks, tiger sharks, and bull sharks. And they're amazing and incredible in their own rights. But what people may not realise is that Australia is home to over 320 species of shark and ray. So sharks and rays are, are part of the same group of animals, the cartilaginous fish, so the same stuff made out of your, your ears and your nose. Um, and... Of those 320 plus or around about 328 species, a little over 180 of them are sharks and the rest are rays. And of all of them, um, nearly half of them aren't found anywhere else in the world. They, they're unique to Australia. So in as much as an emu or a kangaroo is unique to Australia, nearly half of our shark and ray species are unique to our waters and aren't found anywhere else in the world. And a lot of these species, you know, dwell near the sea floor they can live up to a kilometer below the waves um some of the people may not realize that they've already encountered like particularly along the southern coastlines of, of australia into new south wales uh the the southern and the eastern fiddler ray which you often mm-hmm. see near piers and in the shallows and some people also know it as a banjo shark so massive diversity of all shapes sizes colors and quirks um and it's a shame that, yeah, they do have that, that bad rep because 
a lot of them are in trouble um, and don't, I suppose, have that fearsome reputation as well. So we need to encourage a bit more uh, awareness of not just sharks and rays, but a bit more connection to them as well. Because we're seeing right now a really concerning number of sharks that are being killed by humans as bycatch, as not even as bycatch, as intentional catches. But what are the greatest risks to sharks in addition to that? Is it just commercial fishing or is there more? Fishing by far and by far. Um, fishing is the single biggest challenge the sharks and rays face across the world. Um, in and amongst that, yeah, you do have... Um, habitat destruction. So whether that's through, you know, coastal areas being developed for housing or, or industry, um, and you also have habitat destruction in the form of, of climate change. So particularly the Great Barrier Reef, where you've got corals that are bleaching. But by and large, without a doubt, unequivocally, um, fishing is their single greatest threat, and that's predominantly from from commercial fishing. Although I should say. Um, and even in Australia, recreational fishing does have an impact. And generally speaking, it is underestimated because the data around that's quite poor. And that's a challenge that, that we're addressing at the moment. But yeah, globally, commercial fishing. And as you touched on, there was a paper that came out just a couple of weeks ago. that gave us a bit of an update. And, you know, between 2012 and 2019, we're looking at, you know, a minimum conservative estimate of about 76 to 80 million sharks per year that are being killed. Um, and what I found particularly interesting about this paper is that, you know, it's not really finning that's the issue, which in the great, you know, in, in the public's mind across the world, finning seems to be the number one issue and it is an issue. And, you know, it, it's not completely solved, but the, the real issue here is actually the consumption of, of shark meat and how that's evolved over time. So what can we do to change or update the legislation to better protect sharks in this regard? There's, there's quite a few things that can be done. Um, I'll focus mainly on, mainly on the Australian context because that's what I, I presume our audience is most familiar with. But firstly, from an international level, so November 2022, um, all whaler species, hammerhead species and Qatar and fish species were listed on an international instrument called CITES Appendix 2. Without getting too complicated, going too far in the weeds, what that basically means is that a considerable majority of the shark species that we have in our waters, particularly the coastal species. So when I say whalers, these are your typical looking sharks. These are like your black tip reef sharks, your bronze whalers, your dusky whalers. Um, these uh, species being listed on Appendix 2 come under greater international, I suppose, regulation um, and a greater number of international scrutiny in the sense that countries now have to prove with these species that when they trade them internationally, their management and their fishing practices aren't coming at the detriment of any one of those species' populations. It's easier said than done. Um, because, again, as, as this paper has highlighted and as what, what scientists and conservationists have known for, for decades is that you can have countries like Australia that are very well-resourced, democratic countries, politically stable, um, and relative to the rest of the world, you know, pretty good fisheries management. We definitely have some significant problems in our backyard, 
but when we're looking at a global scale, pretty good. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have, say, countries on the African continent that politically unstable, not well resourced, um, and so, you know, will often, um, for the lack of a better phrase, sell their fishing grounds to the highest bidder. And these might be fishing fleets from Spain, um, which is one of the world's, uh, I suppose, first and foremost, uh, shark fishing countries. And so other countries will come into other countries' waters and start plundering those. And so you can see on that end of the spectrum, it's not great, to say the least. Um, so that that's kind of at an international level. And yeah, there are laws and regulations and international uh, bodies and, and instruments that can be used. But when we zoom down at a domestic level, so here in Australia, um, when we look at laws, we've got our national environment laws. So this is the Environment uh, Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. Now, this... These nature laws at this very moment are currently undergoing a once in a generation review, but as it currently stands, you do have some shark and ray species listed on there. And some of them, despite being endangered, can still be legally harvested. So we're looking at the scalloped hammerhead and the school shark in particular, both of which are endangered in Australian waters. Yet they exist in this legislation under this loophole called conservation dependent, which in short says, look, Keep fishing for them, even though they're endangered. You've just got to show that they're sort of recovering. Well, the reality is, is there's no evidence to suggest that they are recovering. There's no quantifiable evidence to say that. And so at a consumer level, people are being sold endangered species, often unknowingly because it's just generically called flake in some circumstances or, or you know, boneless fillet. Um, and they're consuming endangered species caught in Australian waters. So one solution there is you know, fix our nature laws so that we protect our endangered species from harvesting and then that incentivises um, fishing practices that avoid catching those species. Some might say, well, yeah, great, that's law on paper, big deal. What about stuff that happens on the water? That's another great question. So to address the root cause, and that is to stop sharks being, say, endangered sharks being pulled from the water in the first place, there's a couple of fundamental things that can be implemented. Um, one is robust independent monitoring programs. So this basically means you could have cameras on vessels um, and scientists on vessels that essentially monitor what's being caught, where it's being caught and in what numbers. That enables us to identify hotspots or areas that might need to be protected from fishing. Um, it enables us to collect data that ultimately enables our fisheries to be environmentally sustainable and protect threatened endangered species. Then there's aspects of looking at of gear type. Um, and again, the, the paper that I mentioned kind of explores this as well. So in Australia, the predominant me method of fishing for sharks is with gill nets, so big fishing nets. And they're called gill nets because a shark will hit it, um, it get trapped in the gills and die. And the idea is, is that you know smaller sharks can swim through it, larger sharks bounce off it, but the right size shark gets caught. Problem is with gill netting, um, it might be great for selecting the size of a shark, but it's terrible in terms of its indiscriminate nature of catching everything else. So turtles, dolphins, dugongs, seals, and so forth. So from an environmentally sustainable perspective, you know, fishing and sustainability is not just the number of a given fish, it's the broader impact. So changing gears from say, gill netting to long lining is a step in the right direction. Long lining is not without its evils, but from a shark point of view, 
um, generally speaking, and I've studied this extensively, but generally speaking from a shark point of view, they've got a greater chance of survival if they're caught on a long line. So this is a long line literally with a hook because they can still kind of move and breathe so that when they are caught, um, a fisher with the appropriate level of training and practice can actually release the shark safely and it can swim off. Um, versus a gill net where shark most likely is going to come up dead um, or depending on the species, not a high grade chance of survival. And then also you can look at trawling and, and that's quite damaging as well. So we can look at the type of gears we use, the type of fishing gear we use and long lining is probably the lesser of the evils because you're not catching as high volumes. There's a greater chance of survival. Um, you're looking at independent monitoring so we know what's being caught where and how many, and you're looking at fixing laws so that you know the, the threatened endangered sharks are protected um, under law. And then at a consumer level, um, what's also really important is accurate seafood labeling. So knowing what you're eating, where it's from, and how it was caught. Because again, this is that consumer-driven approach where you know, I as a consumer can say, no, I don't want to eat that species because I know it's endangered and I don't like the way it was fished. That then might incentivize the business to say, well, we don't want to stock this particular fish anymore because people are saying it's endangered. They're not buying it. I'm not making money. I don't want it. I don't want to waste my money. Then you go up the chain and it's essentially, well, okay, we're going to change how we fish because that's not a valuable product anymore. And you can see how it unfolds. And the, the general public are, are more aware of sustainability now as well. So it's a really, really long-winded way of saying the solution's complex, but at an international level, you know, there's international instruments that can be used in legislation, but the focus really has to be at a national and regional level, particularly national. And again, this paper that we refer to highlights that, that the big threats are in national waters and how countries um, enforce their laws, enforce their monitoring, um, improve their data collection and look at how they fish and where they fish. Yeah. How do we better educate consumers so that they're aware of this? You know, I if I go into the shops and I buy something labelled as flake, it do, it as you said, it just says flake. I don't know mm. what shark species it is or how it's caught. Do we campaign? Do we add stickers? How do we how do we go about that? Brilliant question, and it's a challenge um, I've been addressing along with my, my my colleagues at the Australian Marine Conservation Society. We've been addressing it for the past few years now. Um, so I suppose just, just just the clarity, when we say flake, flake should only refer to a species of shark, a gummy or rig shark. And these particular sharks are in pretty good numbers. They're, they're not threatened species. But since around the 1920s, flake's been used as a general catch-all term for just shark meat. So I just want to I just want to clarify that. But yes, you're right. Generally, when you go out, you water flake. You don't know what species you're eating, and we've had a few papers come through in, in the recent years um, saying that a range of species are caught, including endangered ones. And so, as a consumer, fortunately, the Australian Marine Conservation Society has an app called the Good Fish app. So goodfish.org.au, um, and there's an app that goes with it. And basically, you punch in any particular species you wish to to eat or want to check out. There's a traffic light system, red, yellow, uh, green. Red being not sustainable, don't eat it. Yellow being mm, it's on the right path. There's still a bit of unknowns, perhaps eat less. And green is 
you know, we've independently assessed this and this species is pretty good, you know, you're okay. And again, as I said earlier, that's kind of a consumer-driven way to incentivize. And we've seen this happen in fisheries um, and with commercial fishers that we work with and in governments. We've seen the power of this program and consumer power actually incentivize change um, in our fisheries. And so using an app like, like the Good Fish app is one way to do it. Um, and in lieu of laws that mandate accurate labeling and, and where something's from, you know, three really important questions that you can ask a, a retailer or, or someone in a shop of any sort is, what species is this? Where was it caught? And how was it caught? Really, really simple. You'll have a discussion with, with, with your retailer or your local fish and chip shop. Um, and it's just basic information that if they get that information often enough from everyone, again, it then incentivizes an operator to go, I really need to know this stuff because all my customers are asking for it. And that kind of, again, as I said, it, it feeds up that, that chain and ultimately ends up in better fishing practices. Um, and of course, you know, that there are people who prefer to, to not eat fish at all and vegans and so forth and, and hats off to them. But the reality is, is the vast majority of Australians do eat seafood. And so things like the Good Fish app is a tool to at least start informing people on that journey as to what they may or may not want to eat with the best available information. Um, and the other thing others might be aware of uh, are sustainable seafood certification bodies like, like MSC and the Blue Tick. I will say that um, there's of late been considerable controversy around how MSC goes about certifying sustainable seafood. Um, but again, what I would suggest to any consumer, um, yeah, have a look at the Good Fish app, use that, ask those three basic questions, and at the very least, you'll be on good, fitting, or good footing um, to make a choice that you're comfortable with. And that's a really great easy way for people to, to start talking about it and start to learn more as well. You know, we're seeing all of these sharks, you know, disappearing from our waters. How is that loss going to affect marine ecosystems? Oh, yeah, it's, um, it's, I mean, I, I can't predict the future, obviously, but I mean, if I had to just give you a one word answer, I'd say devastating. And I say that because sharks generally operate, generally occupy the, the top of a food web and they, as an apex predator. And as such, they keep everything else in check and in balance. And if you take too many sharks out of that, that role, food webs risk becoming unstable. And that instability can ultimately cause collapse, which then ultimately affects the seafood that lands on your plate. So there's a lot of flow on effects there. Um, and the, the reality is, is a healthy ocean needs its sharks. It, it's that simple, if not just for biodiversity, but as I said, for the very seafood that lands on your plate, if we genuinely want sustainable fisheries into the future and be able to access protein from the sea, um, and not just as Australians access protein from the sea, but if we're to support other countries where their predominant only form of protein is from the sea, then we really need to fish for the future because otherwise we're not going to be able to fish in the future. 
Um, and so I, I do a lot of work up in the Northern Territory fisheries as well, particularly through the lens of shark and ray conservation. And, you know, I, I have some understanding that, that for a lot of First Nations people, you often hear the line, you know, the ocean's our supermarket. That's their, not only is their cultural practice that they've been doing for thousands and thousands of years, but ultimately it's where they get their protein from, the sea, barramundi, a range of other fish. And so when we start looking after sharks and rays in our commercial fisheries, we're ultimately looking after everything. Um, and that then enables, you know, as I said, sustainable fisheries, not just for general consumption, but also sustainable fisheries that support cultural practices too. Does the Department of Fisheries, are they informed by cultural sustainable fishing practices? Is there room for that to be to happen? Yeah, so um, I should clarify that there's no, you know, one overarching Department of Fisheries in Australia. Each jurisdictional state has its own fisheries department and then at a federal level you have another fisheries department and they often interact with the environment department. So I suppose what I'm saying is, is that there's no one single body. It's quite complex depending on where you go. And as a result, the nature and the level of engagement with First Nations is similarly complex and involved. Um, there's no one kind of response to that. But that said, um, from my point of view and as a conservationist, it is absolutely paramount that First Nations people are supported in their aspirations and given the space and the time and the resources to have their input and have it as valid as any other person's input or any other industry's input. Um, that's in some respects becoming better and better. Um, but as we know, with a lot of things with First Nations, historically, probably not so great. Um, there's still a raft of issues, but the, the short version is, is that, yes, fisheries managers across the countries are keenly aware of and do incorporate um, First Nations as a stakeholder. How well they do that and how comprehensively they do that, that's another question. Um, and you could probably devote an entire other interview to that, yeah. Leo, earlier you mentioned that Jaws was like a massive uh, inspiration for you to become involved in shark conservation. <laughs> yeah, it was, to be frank. <laughs> How do you think human attitudes have contributed to conservation around sharks, both the good and the bad? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really interesting one. Um, I'd like to think, and this is, <laughs> I'll try not to be biased, but... I mean, the caveat is I probably am, but I'd like to think that I'd like to think that um, the conservation work I've been involved in with with the Australian Marine Conservation Society, as well as other NGOs like Humane Society, International Air Campaign Partners, and and a, people like WWF and and a few others, I'd like to think that our concerted effort to really change the conversation and shift the dial on the positive for sharks over the past six years has made a bit of a dent that we're seeing this positive shift. Um, anecdotally, and again, I acknowledge my bias here, but anecdotally in my dealings with the media over the past six years, I'm confident that if someone was to kind of comprehensively analyse the media to date over the past decade, I'm confident that 
there would be a little bit of a shift into the positive. Granted, not a lot, because you are changing, you know, cultural perceptions that have been ingrained for decades, and it's not going to change in five years, but or not by by a huge amount. But I'm confident that that the the general narrative around sharks has shifted into the positive. Um, the way the media reports on sharks, I think, is shifting in the positive. Um, and that's because there's a lot more people now kind of taking media to task saying, hold on, you didn't explain, you know, the environmental significance here or there's a greater voice when they start talking about fisheries issues or when we start talking about, you know, tragic shark bite incidences is... Um, some of the reporting now I, I feel can be a lot more measured because you are having more scientists, more conservationists involved um, as opposed to just, you know, the sensationist clickbaity, this is going to be a great story and let it run wild. It still does happen. But, yeah, the short version is, is I think people's perceptions of sharks and understandings of sharks and their importance is slowly shifting into the positive. But, you know, you've you've got to keep a close eye on it and you've got to constantly go on the sort of uh, you've got to shift that narrative by, by informing people as much as possible um, and unfortunately facts don't win an argument because if they did we wouldn't have a thing called climate change um, and so how you go about shifting public perceptions and understandings it's a science and an art and it really requires speaking to all people on all kinds of the spectrum and really engaging on a level of, of values and understanding as opposed to just yeah. saying, no, you're wrong, this is the truth. Because then they're just going to go, no, you're wrong, and then you get nowhere. Um, so, yeah, public perceptions, I like to think, are, are shifting into the positive. It's definitely challenging, particularly when you start talking about shark bites. Um, but it, it's something that that I think, yeah, everyone's moving in the, in the right direction. What do you think or what do you want people to know about sharks that they might not know? They're incredibly intelligent. They're not a cold, dumb, unknowing fish. Um, they are fish, but they're incredibly intelligent. Um, and we're only really sort of scratching the surface on, on their level of intelligence. So it's well established that the sharks can learn, sharks and rays can learn. You can train them, much like you can train a dog in terms of feeding and, and so forth. And, you know, I've done it and I've seen it in other aquaria and other laboratories where, you know, you can you can walk up to a tank and look down on it and all of a sudden the rays will come towards you thinking they're going to be fed. Um, the other end of the spectrum, we've got um, this issue called depredation, which is basically sharks stealing the catch of a fisher. And... There's a lot of factors, but but one of the one of the prime one of the I think the major underlying factors is the fact that sharks can learn, and we have had some studies show that where you've got greater levels of recreational fishing in a certain area, you've got greater incidences of shark depredation because they know that that's where they can get an easy feed, and no animal's going to work harder than it has to. So they're incredibly intelligent in that regard. Um, but to give rays a bit of a shout out because they are part of that same group of animals. Um, You've got manta rays, which I think from memory have the largest brain to body size for a, for a fish, I think. I'll have to double check that. But I digress slightly because manta rays um, have been shown to, or female manta rays at least, have been shown to basically gather and catch up with their besties at like the local cleaning station. 
Um, and so there's some there's there's some social element to the lives of sharks and rays that again we're we're slowly starting to scratch the surface of because historically we think of them as just lone fish doing their thing. Um, and with great whites, you know, they're starting to look at some of how they behave socially amongst other great whites. Uh, and there's a study not too long ago that kind of showed that, you know, great whites will follow other great whites because they go, that great white knows where there's going to be a kill or that great white knows where there's going to be some food. So they think, they feel, um, and I'm not anthropomorphizing, they do. Um, uh, and so there's, there's this richness to them that, again, we're only scratching the surface of. And I think the more we understand how they live their daily lives, um, interact with with other sharks and rays and other species. I think um, it can only serve them well in terms of the human perception of them. I guess, yeah. Finally, what can people do to get involved a bit more with the Australian Marine Conservation Society? Hundred um, percent. You can visit sharkchampions.org.au, and that's our one-stop shop for all things shark conservation in Australia. Um, there's a range of actions there that you can take to to help end shark culling in Australia and also improve. Um, will protect threatened species from fishing. Um, and as part of that, you'll be signing up to an email list that, that we regularly communicate with and give everyone the update on the things that you can do and issues that are occurring in Australian waters. So that, that, that's one avenue. Um, there's also goodfish.org.au. That's AMCS's Sustainable Seafood Guide. Again, that'll help you when you're out on the street or out in the restaurant and you're wanting to grab a bit of a feed. Um, and last and not least um basically you know the, the classic like spread the word um in the conversations that you have perhaps challenge some people's perceptions and maybe just ask a few questions as to why they think that or how does that work um because often i find that again it goes back to this idea that rather than just throw facts at people and back and forth often if you ask people to sort of question themselves and justify or explain why they had a certain thought or feeling or response to something, it can sometimes trigger them to actually change their mind because most often people will just say things and not know why they said them. But then when they get asked why, including myself, you go, oh, yeah, why do I think that? And then you can see what happens. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. Thank you so much for coming on today, Leo. I hope that all our listeners, you know, really learned something that they might not have known about sharks before and are inspired to get out there and, and do their part in conservation. No worries. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it.